take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to look at the subject matter, the most interesting man in the world. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Father, we are so grateful for this time of the year when we celebrate the birth of our Savior. That you sent your Son into this world, clothed in flesh, that he might be our sympathetic high priest and experience everything that we experience yet without sin. He went to the cross and he died for our sin, the just for the unjust, that we might have peace with God. Lord, open our hearts and our minds and our understanding to this beautiful text in the New Testament that describes for us in such eloquent words the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, being drawn into a greater understanding of our Savior, may we worship Him all the more intensely this holiday season. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. the most interesting man in the world. He once freed a massive-sized grizzly bear that was caught in a large steel trap. He walked right up to the bear in the trap, bent down, and he pried the steel trap open. And then he stood up straight. Without any fear, he looked the grizzly bear straight in the eye. The bear walked off. His feet don't get blisters, but his shoes do. Roses stop to smell him. Superman has his pajamas with his name on them. He once caught the Loch Ness Monster on a cane pole and he threw it back. He brought a knife to a gunfight just to even the odds. His passport requires no photograph. When he drives a car off the car lot, it actually increases in value. If he were to pat you on the back, you would put it on your resume. Once a rattlesnake bit him, and after five excruciating days of pain, the snake finally died. All of the women swoon over him. The men are jealous and envious of him. It's as though he is James Bond and Clark Gable all rolled into one. Who am I speaking of? Of course, as the commercial says, the world's most interesting man. 
The commercials end with the gentleman at a table in a darkly lit room holding a bottle of beer saying, I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I prefer, and then he names that name brand of beer. Since that campaign began in 2006, their sales have soared 22%. But folks, there's a problem. Well, actually, there are two problems. The first problem is the fact that it's a beer commercial to start with. But that aside, even if such a character did exist in real life, it would be a lie. He would not be the most interesting man in the world. You see, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us who that honor would go to. These three verses are simple and yet profound. They tell us that Christ is superior to everyone and everything. He indeed is the most interesting man in the world. The Bible says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. His mission was not to travel the world in narcissistic adventures, but his mission was to reconcile those dead in trespasses and sins to the Heavenly Father. What we see here in these verses is that Jesus Christ is the ultimate way in which God has communicated to the human race. First of all, I want you to see with me this morning the activity of the Father. Read with me again verses 1 and 2. The writer of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. What a way for the writer of Hebrews to begin this awesome book. Now, by the way, and I know it's trivia, you're probably not interested in it. I find it fascinating, but, but I think the early church father Origen was probably right as to who wrote Hebrews. Origen concluded only God knows. The theories abound. Some believe Paul, some believe Luke, some believe Apollo, some believe Priscilla and Aquila, some Barnabas. You see, the writer never identifies himself anywhere in the book. And the title in the King James Version that says the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews is not a part of the inspired text. It was added later on. Plus a problem with Pauline authorship would show up in chapter 2. You see the writer identifies himself as a second generation believer, one who depended himself upon the ministry of the apostles. I find that to be hardly a way that the apostle Paul would identify himself. Because he always defended his apostleship. Plus, as Leon Morris writes, Paul's Greek was rugged though vigorous. And the Greek in the book of Hebrews is the best Greek in the entire Greek New Testament. It's very polished. As David Allen says, the opening paragraph of Hebrews is the stylistic apex of the entire Greek New Testament. One scholar comments, it's clear to him at least, that the individual who wrote the opening verses to Luke, who wrote the opening verses to Acts, and who wrote the opening verses to Hebrews surely had to be one and the same individual. It's been a resurgence lately of interest in Luke and the authorship of Hebrews. If that's true, that would certainly explain Pauline similarities 
Because remember, Paul was, uh, Luke was Paul's traveling companion in the later half of the book of Acts and the one who put pen to paper and wrote of those missionary travels. The language and style and vocabulary of Luke and Acts and Hebrews have many similarities and are, as I mentioned, more sophisticated than other books in the New Testament. And that would fit very well with what we know about Dr. Luke. In fact, two-thirds of the entire vocabulary of Hebrews also shows up in Luke and Acts. There are 53 words, a large number shared between Hebrews, Luke, and Acts that don't occur anywhere else in the New Testament. But again, with all that said and done, we've got to appreciate what Origen said when he said, in the final analysis, only God knows. But, but back to the first point that he is making as he opens this wonderful book. What is it that he's trying to tell us? He tells us, first of all, that we serve a God who acts. He speaks. He communicates. Aren't you glad this Christmas season that we serve a God who desires to enter into fellowship with us and to communicate with us? A wonderful thing because otherwise we would not know him. I hope you realize this morning that Christianity is a revelatory faith. It is dependent upon the fact that God has revealed himself to mankind. And we would not know God apart from this revelation. And that's why the Bible is so important. God has revealed himself to us through his written word and through his living word, that is through the Bible and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're dependent on that revelation. We just collected the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions this morning and our missionaries tell us that when they go into cultures that do not have a copy of the Bible, you know what they find? They find the natives bowing down and worshiping rocks and trees and all sorts of things. You see, when men reject or don't know the truth of God is expressed in his word, they turn to all manner of things, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. That's, what, that's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. And that's why I believe the single greatest challenge to the church of today all over the world is that we have a biblical worldview. It's one of the saddest commentaries to me on the church today when professing Christians are asked about some of the key issues facing society today. Some professing Christians will answer with answers that are contrary to the word of God. Folks, that's disturbing. You and I need to have a biblical worldview. And in that biblical worldview, as we rely upon God's revelation to mankind, I want you to notice what the writer says right off in chapter 1. He highlights the activity of the Father. And what is the activity of the Father that he communicates? The first thing I want you to see in regards to that is that God spoke in the past. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Man today thinks he can figure out life. 
Man uses reason, rationalism. He uses experience, existentialism. He uses his feelings, intuitionism. And through those three isms, he thinks he can figure out all the answers to life and eternity. But he can. He comes up short every time. You see, we need God speaking to us. We need the Scripture. We need God's revelation. God takes the initiative. He would have to because the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that apart from God's initiative, there are none who seek after God. You say, but preacher, I sought after God when I was an 11-year-old boy. But don't you understand the Bible points out that if you sought after God, it's because God was seeking you first. He communicates. He speaks. The writer of Hebrews says he spoke long ago in the prophets. He spoke to people like Moses and also I think of characters in the Bible like Joshua and Samuel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel all the way down to Malachi. And what is it that God said? Well, let's consider the very first promise he gave of a Savior. That shows up in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God spoke in Genesis 3 there and gave the first promise of a Savior. And then the text I read at the beginning of the service today, Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. God spoke long ago in the prophets. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, In many portions, many different sermons and books and prophecies, we have the law the first five books of the Bible. We have the historical books that spell out God's dealings with His people within history. We have the wisdom writings like Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job. We have the prophets. We have the major prophets and the minor prophets. God spoke long ago in many ways, in the prophets, in many portions. And he goes on again and says, in many ways, some of those ways that I think about that God spoke to the people in the Old Testament would be through direct discourse. I think of Exodus chapter 3. There Moses was out in the, out in the fields around Midian tending his father-in-law's flock, Jethro's flock, and he came upon a bush that was burning and yet the bush was not consumed. And out of that burning bush, God spoke to Moses. And God called Moses to go back to Egypt and speak to the Hebrews. And to take that staff, that staff was one of the ways God was going to speak to the Hebrews. His hand was another. He said, Moses, put your hand in your cloak. And he pulled it out and it was leprous. And he put it in again and pulled it out and it was clean. And that was going to be a sign to the Hebrews. And then I think of all of those plagues God brought upon the Egyptians. God was speaking through all of those ways. God spoke to Elijah in the still small voice. He spoke to Isaiah in that vision in the temple that day. He spoke to Hosea through Hosea's 
broken family relationships. He spoke to Amos in something as insignificant as a summer, a basket of summer fruit. God spoke in visions and dreams. I think of Daniel, those great visions and dreams that God gave to Daniel about the coming earthly kingdoms of the world. God spoke in all of those ways. The emphasis here in Hebrews is on many or varied ways that God spoke. And yet the message was not disjointed at all. It was not contradictory. The unfolding redemption story was very unified and progressive in the sense that it was building toward one glorious conclusion of a coming Savior, Jesus Christ. You say, how in the world did God do all that? Well, Peter answers that in 2 Peter 1.21 when he says, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Folks, it was all perfect. It was all inspired. But while it was perfect and inspired, it was incomplete. Because you see the Old Testament, the Old Covenant by its very nature was pointing forward to something better. It was pointing forward to the fulfillment of the Old Covenant when God would send His Son in the New Covenant who would be the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And so in the Old Covenant we see something referred to by theologians as progressive revelation. The Old Testament is an unfolding of God's truth, bringing us all the way down to the New Covenant, bringing us all the way through those books of the Old Covenant until we come to Matthew 1.1. And what he's saying is through all those books back there in the Old Testament, God was speaking many ways, many different ways through the prophets. But then he goes on secondly to describe the activity of the Father here by the fact that God continues to speak. God speaks in the present. He says in verse 2, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Folks, you see what he's saying? God still communicates. While there is a contrast in the ways God has spoken, there is a continuity in the message. It all pointed to Jesus Christ. He says in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. Think back with me a moment to that message Kevin Knight preached last week from Luke 1. Remember the text beginning there in Luke 1 verse 26 where it says, In the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to Mary and said, Greetings, old favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. 
And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Folks, that's what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate Jesus. He is indeed the most interesting man in the world. But he's not just a man. He was the God-man. Fully God and fully human. Folks, the fact of the matter is that in all of human history, there has never been anyone like the Lord Jesus. Years ago, an anonymous writer penned these words. He wrote, more than 1,900 years ago, there was a man born contrary to the laws of life. This man lived in poverty and was reared in obscurity. Only once did he cross the boundary of the country in which he lived, and that was during his exile in childhood. In infancy, he startled the king. In childhood, he puzzled the religious doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature, walked upon the billows of the sea as if on pavement, and he hushed the sea to sleep. He never wrote a book, and yet all of the libraries of all the countries could not hold the books that have been written about him. He never wrote a song, and yet he's furnished the theme for more songs than all the songwriters ever combined. He never founded a college, but all the schools put together cannot boast of having as many students. Though time has spread many years between the people of this generation and the scene of his crucifixion, yet he still speaks. And lives. Herod could not destroy him. The grave could not hold him. He stands forth upon the highest pinnacle of heavenly glory, proclaimed by God, acknowledged by angels, adored by saints, and feared by devils as the living personal Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and our God. To those words, another writer has added these. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he is still the central figure of the human race. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. Amen. There has never been, nor will there ever be, anyone like Jesus Christ. He is indeed the world's most interesting man. He's the God-man. And folks, that is precisely the point of the book of Hebrews. Jesus Christ is better in every way. He is superior in every way. And through him, God has ushered in a new dispensation, a new age that that uh, was inaugurated with the arrival of Jesus Christ. He describes it here simply with the words, in these last days. And you know what that means? That means there is not a new way coming with which God is going to deal with us. Jesus is the climax. Jesus is the supreme way. He's what the old covenant was all about. He's the one that the old covenant was speaking of. Remember when Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus with those disciples? And the Bible says he opened up the Old Testament to them and from Moses he showed them how it all testified to the Christ. 
The new's not disconnected from the old. The old covenant was preparatory to what we have in Christ. Now in the fullest, the most complete way, God has come. God, you could say, wrote himself in to the storyline. He sent his son. You know, today if our president wants to communicate with some other ruler somewhere in the world, some other government, our president can send one of his cabinet members. And that cabinet member will go with the message of our president. What a powerful way to communicate. But the most powerful way is when the president goes himself and speaks to another uh, leader. Husbands, you can be traveling on a job. And you can be out of town over your wife's birthday and your wife's birthday arrives. Would you call your secretary and tell your secretary, hey, would you call my wife and in my behalf, would you wish her a happy birthday? If you do that, you better stay gone a little bit longer. Nothing as powerful as going yourself. And the Bible says that's what God did. He sent his son. Galatians 4.4. The Bible says, but when the fullness of time came. You hear those words? When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. John writes in John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father full of grace and truth. Folks, what I want you to see is that God is active. He is speaking. God speaks. But the question is, are we listening? This Christmas season, are we listening? Have you listened to the message of the Bible? It all testifies of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Have you ever come into a saving relationship with Him where you have been born again and your life has been changed? The old is gone and everything has become new. That's how God speaks through His Word, testifying of Jesus and the relationship that we can have with Him through His Son. Have you listened to that message? Have you listened to that message? Have you heard? Do you see here that Jesus is the way that God is dealing with people today? You see, any way is not equal. It is not all the same because it's got to be based on the truth. And it must be the way that God is dealing with man. There is one way that God is speaking, and that one way is through His Son. God's not speaking today in a hundred different ways with a hundred different messages. He's not speaking in 50 different ways. He's not speaking in 10 different ways or 5 different ways or even 2 different ways. He's speaking in one way and that one way is Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. For centuries men have tried to reach up to God and bridge the gap between themselves and God. And man can't do that. And because man can't do that, God in Jesus Christ reached down to us. 
I want you to get this down. Christianity is not a philosophy. It is a person. It's not a code. It's not a creed. Christianity is Christ himself. Philip Brooks, a great preacher of another time, was once asked the question, is it necessary to have a personal, relation, a personal experience with Christ to be a Christian? The great preacher paused for a moment and then he replied, my friend, a personal experience with Christ is Christianity. Not only do I want you to see the activity of the Father this morning, though, I want you to see the accolades of the Son. Beginning there in verse 2 all the way down through verse 14. But for our purposes, we'll stop at verse 3 today. In verse 2 he says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see what he's saying there? Jesus is superior to the prophets and Jesus is superior to the angels. Some people try to say... Jesus was just another prophet. Oh, no, 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 no. He's greater than the prophets. Look at the way he's described here. Writer of Hebrews is going to give us a number of different phrases describing Jesus. The first descriptive phrase is that he was appointed the heir of all things. Look at that word heir. That is a title of dignity. Who is it that owns everything? It's Jesus. When Jesus went back to the right hand of God, folks, he was simply going back to what had always been his rightful place. The psalmist said in Psalm 2, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. You see, the scripture says that God is in the process of putting all things under his feet. He is the heir of all things. Not only the heir of all things, but he goes on to say, through whom also he made the world. I want you to go back in your minds with me a moment to Genesis 1.1, where it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. But then we come to the New Testament. And we see that God actually did, God actually accomplished Genesis 1-1 through the agency of Jesus Christ. In the book of Colossians, Paul says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him and so we see there in the new covenant that the son was the agent of creation and so he's both the creator and he's the heir it all belongs to him it's all rightfully his 
The word used for world here doesn't simply refer to the material world, but it's the word that encompasses all of time and space and energy and matter. In other words, the Bible is communicating to us here that everything rightfully belongs to Jesus Christ. Christ created this universe and He's the one who makes it function. And folks, think about it. If he created this universe and it all rightfully belongs to him, you know what that means? You and I rightfully belong to him. We're his. And then the next phrase says he's the radiance of God's glory. The radiance of God's glory. The glory of God can be seen in Jesus Christ. Let me give you an analogy here. And granted, most analogies have a little bit of inadequacy in them. But I want you to think with me a moment about the sun and the sun's rays of light. Picture a dark night when the sun, when it's dawn and the sun begins to rise over the horizon and cast its brilliant rays over a pond and across a field. What a beautiful sight that is to see. And folks, there's no way to separate those rays from the sun itself. Well, what the rays of light are to the sun, Jesus is to the Father. He is the radiance of God's glory. Yet another phrase in verse 3, he says he's the exact representation of his nature. The phrase exact representation is the rendering of a word that referred to a stamp or a die. You would stamp something and the stamp or the die would leave the representation of the stamp. Think with me a minute about modern coin making like what the U.S. Mint does uh, at their factory in Philadelphia. They take a die with a recessed image on it. Not a raised image, but a recessed image on it. And think about a penny, a blank, a blank going through the machine and that die with force stamps that penny blank. And on that penny blank, because the die has the recessed image, the penny ends up with the raised image. And think of those two images on the die and on the penny. The exact image of the die is left on the penny. The image and the die and the, the, the image on the coin are identical. Identical. And yet the die and the penny are separate. Identical image, separate. Even so, the Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, are two distinct personalities in the Godhead, the Trinity. And yet the Son is the exact representation of the Father. Folks, that phrase goes even further than the former statement because this says that the one who reflects God's glory actually shares his nature. And that's why on one occasion when the disciples said to Jesus, show us the Father, he responded by saying, have I been so long with you that you don't know who I am? He who has seen me has seen the Father. He's the exact image, the exact representation you could have never said that about a prophet and you can never say it about an angel it could only be said of God's son 
He goes on in verse 3 by saying he upholds all things by the word of his power. Upholding means carrying along. It's the same word that was used in Mark chapter 2 when the four men carried their paralytic friend on the mat and they brought their friend to Jesus. Their friend was helpless and they picked him up and they carried him along. Well, Jesus is like that with the whole created order. The creator is also the sovereign Lord over creation. He's intimately involved and he's carrying it along he's upholding it he's so involved he said a sparrow doesn't fall into the bosom of the earth but what he doesn't take notice folks I know some of you are concerned about all that's going on in the world right now people are nervous about the history of the world right now but do you understand the Bible says regardless of what we see with our eyes that history is still his story and Jesus Christ is upholding it and he's moving it along to the destination that he has put into the script. Notice he does this by the word of his power. Just like Genesis 1.1 says that God spoke and it was so by the word of his power he also uplifts it and he moves it along. Now I want you to think about something. Some of you have come in here this Christmas season and you've got burdens on your heart. Some of you are going through some pretty big trials and tribulations and you're wondering what tomorrow holds and you're worried. And I want to say to you, and I, and I know from a human standpoint of view, we worry about things that go wrong. But I want you to understand the Bible says Jesus Christ created everything. He upholds it. He's moving it along. And if he can do that with the entire universe, he can do it with your life and my life. And that's why Jesus said we don't have to go around worrying all the time like unbelievers because we can know that our lives are in God's hands and through the spirit of the living God we're able to cry out Abba, Father, we're his children and he intimately cares about all that his children go through and he's able to uphold us and get us through whatever it is that we face. Then he goes on to say, when he had made purification of sins. That's why Jesus became flesh, to be our sin substitute. Folks, think about it. Wherever man is conscience, conscious of sin... What does he want to do? He wants to be forgiven of it. He wants to be cleansed. And men do all sorts of strange things sometimes to try to salve their guilty conscience so they could be forgiven of their sins. Uh, just like I said earlier, we try to reach up to God, but we can't do it. All of our attempts fail, but Jesus never fails. Jesus is the one who has purified us from our sins. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2, he made propitiation for our sins. He goes on to say Jesus took care of the putting away of our sins. In chapter 9, he brought about redemption from sins. He bore our sins. In chapter 10, he made sacrifice for sins. He goes on in chapter 10 to say he made an offering for our sins. In other words, whatever had to be done with sin, he did it. And he did it in the final and the most complete way to where on the cross he could say, Tetelestai, it is finished. He's purified us. 
He's forgiven us. He's cleansed us. He's purified us. He made purification. The tense is aorist. It's past. It's complete. It's done. I think of that little boy who came forward one day in church and said, I want to be saved. And, and, and the, preacher went, uh, the boy went on to say to the preacher, I've done my part and Jesus has done his part. And the preacher said, oh, wait a minute, son. We can't take credit for anything. And the little boy said, sure we can. I did my part. I did all the sinning and he did his part. He did all the saving. Now, folks, that's a pretty good theology yet. We did our part. We did all the sinning. And he did his part. He did all the saving. And then he says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Think with me about that a moment. The writer of Hebrews, I believe, is intending to carry us back in our minds a moment and contrast what Jesus has done with all of those priests under the Old Testament Levitical priesthood system. Because those priests, as they were serving in the temple, they could never be seated. There was always another offering for sin to make. They constantly had to stand and make offering for sin because all of those sacrifices were incomplete. But because Jesus' sacrifice was the once for all complete sacrifice, when he offered himself in his body on the tree for your sin and my sin, when he ascended back to the Father, the writer of Hebrews is able to say he was able to sit down at the right hand of God because his work of redemption was done. It's also an interesting contrast on this in the New Testament. Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is being stoned to death and he looks up and God opens the heavens, what does Stephen see? Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And so that, what that means is when you and I, his children are in need, he's standing, he's on the job, he's your advocate, he's your intercessor, but when it comes to your redemption, he sits because the job is finished, the job is done. And he's at the right hand of God. In ancient times, the right hand was seen as the place of honor. Folks, this Christmas I want you to see beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is the most interesting man in the world. He's the God-man. No one like him. He's God's son. God sent in the flesh. Born in a manger as a little baby who grew to be a man who experienced everything you and I experienced yet without sin. So he can be your sympathetic high priest. And then because he was without sin, he went to the cross and died. The just for the unjust that he might bring you to God. The world's most interesting man. Nobody like him. Do you know him? God is not working apart from His Son. He's not working apart from His Son. 
The whole scripture from Genesis to Revelation testifies about the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Do you know him? Is he speaking to you this morning, calling you to faith in him? Repentance of your sins and faith in him. Why are you putting that off? I'm going to ask you to come forward in just a minute and take me by the hand or one of our other ministers and say, Pastor, I need Christ. I need Christ in my life. I need His work of redemption in my life. I need to be forgiven of my sins. I need peace with God. If you've already made that decision, I want you to see that Jesus is worthy of all of your honor, all of your praise, and all the devotion in your life. You see, He's not just a king. He's the king of kings. He's not just a lord. He's the lord of lords. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. To the architect, He's the chief cornerstone. To the astronomer, He's the bride and the morning star. To the butcher, He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. To the baker, He's the bread of life. To the carpenter, He's the master builder. To the diplomat, he's the prince of peace. To the doctor, he's the great physician. To the electrician, he's the light of the world. To the florist, he's the lily of the valley and the rose of Sharon. To the geologist, he's the rock of ages. Jesus Christ is everything. He's worthy of all of our praise and all of our worship. I want to challenge you, believers, to use this Christmas season to get in the Gospels and read the Gospels again and fall in love all over again with the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's everything. And for those of you with trials and burdens, He's sufficient to carry all of your needs. He's sufficient to carry you. I wish this morning we had time just to turn the page and keep on going right into chapter 2 because in chapter 2, do you realize what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2? He says if all of those things that God wrote about in the Old Covenant, all of those laws, all of those prophecies, all of those commands, if the people back then broke one of those, they were guilty before God and there were serious consequences. And yet the revelation in the Old Covenant wasn't as great as the revelation in the New Covenant. He's saying you and I are more accountable to God because we've read about His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, if they were accountable, you and I better be warned not to neglect what we have in Jesus Christ and not to drift away from the hope that we have in Him. Jesus Christ, the most interesting man in the world. The most interesting man in all of creation.